This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Conversations. Will you all please rise for the national anthem of the great Hutt River Province? Okay, you can sit down now. This anthem was created to honour the Hutt River Province in Western Australia, founded by Prince Leonard and his consort, Princess Shirley. Its national motto is, while I breathe, I hope. It came about because in 1970, Prince Leonard, who was then merely Leonard Casley, decided to secede his wheat property from the Commonwealth of Australia and strike out on his own, minting coins and stamps and passports. The whole thing was a media sensation and thousands of visitors flocked to his capital, which was the property's homestead, some 500 kilometres north of Perth. There have been a great many such micronations across the world. There's the Kingdom of Beer Tawil in Africa, population zero, the offshore platform known as the Principality of Sealand and the Republic of Minerva, set up as a libertarian tax haven on a partially submerged Pacific reef. Even John Lennon and Yoko Ono had a crack at it, declaring themselves to be founders of a nation they called Newtopia that existed inside the kitchen of their New York apartment. Who better to take us on a tour of these far-out exotic places than one of Australia's most distinguished constitutional scholars, George Williams, who's Professor of Law at UNSW. George and constitutional rights lawyer Harry Hobbs have co-written a book and it's called How to Rule Your Own Country, The Weird and Wonderful World of Micronations. Hello, George. Hello. I'm enormously encouraged by your book, I must say. So encouraged that I've decided right now, here and now, to establish the empire of Corolla. I'm calling it that because that's the nickname we have for this ABC studio. We call it the Corolla because it's kind of functional and basic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make myself the emperor or president for life. And, George, I don't want you to get too carried away, but I'm seriously considering appointing you my attorney general, Lord High Chancellor and master of the roles. Now, if I am to set up this empire of Corolla here and now, come at me, Ida Buttrose, come at me, Anthony Albanese. If I was to do that, what are some of the things you think I'd need? Like, I'd need an anthem, surely, for a start. I think so, and I think it's time we had a, a king of conversations. So I think uh, it's a great title. I think you'd look at having your anthem. I think you'd look at minting a few coins, some stamps. Um, you might consider a passport. You might even consider letting other people join you in the studio, perhaps even virtually. And uh, you may even expand your community enormously on the internet. And in some cases, people attract thousands of people. Maybe they're attracted to the idea of uh, you as a king, of conversations, of the sort of ideals that you want to put out in the world. And uh, these are people who range from visionaries through to cranks, but there are many of them and they're having a big impact. Would some kind of uniform help me, do you think? I think a lot of people like a good uniform mm. and lots of medals, I would think, as well, and uh, probably a nice hat. And I think you should invest yourself not just with a title but probably some honorary awards as well <laughs> that emphasise your importance and enable you to shape your own world in a way you would like to be seen. Lord Sir Field Marshal to you, sir, from now on, if you don't mind. That'll exactly. be the way Yes, Exactly. Uh, it's a fun idea, this. The, the, the thing you point out in your book is how hard it is actually to define what a micronation is. Is it easy to say what it isn't? Uh, it is because it's hard to say what a state is. And it is? 
on the one hand, we know that a country is Australia or Japan, but then you've got other places like the Vatican, that's a bit harder, or you've got tiny places around the world that have almost no population. In some cases, we've had countries where governments didn't even control their country. If you think of the government in exile of France, for example, during World War II. So when we're thinking about micronations, we're thinking of places that really can't be countries. Um, there's no recognition in law. And they're defined by the fact that these are people who like to parody what a country is about. They do have the medals. They do have the anthem, the constitution. But in the end, there is no legal recognition. It's more a hobby than a legal entitlement, even if many of them strive ultimately to get that recognition. So a state then is really quite an abstract idea and it only really, I suppose, have has some kind of tactile existences when an army is formed under the leadership of a ruler who are committed to the idea of the state. Is that right? In the end, it comes down to control and force. Uh, I think you're a state if you can control an area to the exclusion of others. You've got a government that also is running that area and then it's accepted that if you've got that level of control, whether it's by force, injustice, whatever method, that you're entitled to be recognised as a state. And that explains, of course, why we've had many dictatorships, totalitarian regimes that are states, because in essence... Uh, you know, might can be right in this area. That gives you the ability to say, I'm a state and I dare you to deny it. Have you met my Minister for Defence, my producer Tamar Cranswick in the production studio there? She's a very forceful woman. Well, and one of the nice things about running your own micronation is you can set your own terms. Uh, and usually it's poor, unwitting family members who get drawn <laughs> into these things. They can be given royal titles. They can be given all sorts of responsibilities. And usually, you know, it's, it's a dad of some kind who's gone off on a frolic. It's a hobby gone wrong. And suddenly people find themselves part of a royal family. It's a bit of a vortex then, the whole thing. So, so why Australia? Why, do, why has Australia had so many micronations, much more than it's fair? share, according to your book. Well, and there, there is something special about Australia here. We are seen as micronation central. Um, partly it's the fact that uh, the Hutt River province has been such a beacon for people. It's really excited people and they've copied the example, often by fighting against local councils and saying, I've just had enough of this bureaucracy. I'm going to form my own country. It I seems a very Australian thing to do. I yes. will build my driveway and if it means I have to secede from the Commonwealth, I'll do that. That's right. In Australia, we really welcome that larrikin spirit too. We like people who thumb their nose at authority. There's something nice about the underdog who says, bugger you, I'm actually going to set up my own country. I'm not going to accept what I'm being told. And unlike many other places, we're pretty secure in our sovereignty. We don't take this too seriously. We've got such a large landmass that if the Huts want to set up their own province, what they described as the second largest country in Australia, <laughs> well, who's really to worry about it? Um, whereas maybe if this was somewhere in Europe like Spain where they've got movements or in Africa, I think you might send the army in. Here we say, look, let bygones be bygones and let's enjoy the journey. <laughs> Prince Leonard and Queen Shirley, uh, well, Princess Shirley, I should say. You've got to get the title Sorry, right. I beg your pardon. That would put her above Prince Leonard, which I don't think he would want. It would have wanted. Prince Leonard and Princess Shirley were greatly admired in my family when I was a kid. I think my family really enjoyed his larrikinism and his kind mm. of mockery of, of the whole idea of royalty. And, the, you know, having a bunyip aristocracy is kind of a fun idea, I think. What was the impetus for Leonard Cassidy to make him want to secede from the rest of Australia? Well, and you might have thought it was high ideals, a better world, but in fact it was a fight over wheat quotas. 
he was a farmer in Western Australia. And then after World War II, they had a board which was seeking to stabilise wheat prices. And they said in the late 1960s that you could only harvest a certain number of acres to keep the price down, or actually keep it up, I should say. And he had 6,000 acres he wanted to harvest, and they said you can harvest 100. And you can imagine he, he was looking at bankruptcy, and his reaction was to write letters to everyone and to say this was so unfair, but unlike others who might have taken it, moved on, he said, I'm going to form my own country. Well, I don't... It, it's hard... You know, you can sort of see his point in some way. That That is a bit of a harsh ruling to be... Yeah, it's outrageous. upon you. It is kind of outrageous. As the constitutional scholar that you are, he claimed all sorts of things, all sorts of constitutional rights under international law. What did he claim and, and was there anything to it, do you mind? Well, and, and micronationalists tend to rely upon a, a potpourri of claims from the Magna Carta, Atlantic Treaties, United Nations, the Australian Constitution, sort of weave them all together and come up with a, an argument. But no, there's no weight in the argument. Uh, you can't avoid the road rules. You do have to pay your tax. Australia is formed as one indissoluble Commonwealth. I mean, Western Australia tried to escape the Federation in the 30s and they had uh, two-thirds of their voters said, yes, we want to leave the nation, but even they couldn't escape. So the chances of Prince Leonard doing so through his wheat property were not high. So it's more about the performance than the legal reality. So him claiming that I have the right according to the Magna Carta, these are these are vague principles he's invoking, not, not black-letter law in any way. No. No, there's no real substance to it. But, again, it's performance. And you're cloaking yourself in this veneer of legality. You're pointing to the Magna Carta. That sounds pretty authoritative or whatever you might point to. And in some ways, better that than violent insurrection, that you actually set up your own country, you make your point, you channel your anger, and in some ways it's more productive than the alternative. So he declared independence for the Hutt River province, named himself... Prince Leonard, his wife, Queen Shirley. The kids got titles as well, I, I believe. Postmaster General, all sorts of things. Having done that, despite its lack of foundation in black letter law, did it nonetheless create some ripples in among the WA government or in the federal government at the time? It did, and uh, people were quite worried about this. They thought it would confuse people, especially since Prince Leonard sang writing to overseas countries as well, seeking recognition. And uh, people felt that it might be embarrassing to Australia. And we also saw kids around the country even studying this at schools at different times. So for government, it was this irritation, this embarrassment. And Prince Leonard was very, very good at soliciting replies that might have given a sense that he had some legitimacy. So he'd write letters at Prince Leonard and occasionally people would mistakenly reply to him as Prince Leonard at the Hutt River province. And he'd claim this as vindication, which again would really annoy the authorities. Did he seek diplomatic recognition from other nations? Oh, vociferously. Yes, he certainly did. And uh, he had one success in Hong Kong where they actually recognised the Hutt River ambassador officially before quickly withdrawing it. And the Australian government was often scrambling around the world telling embassies and other places, make sure these countries don't get it wrong. There is no such thing as the Hutt River province. There is no country within a country. But it must have been thousands of letters he sent. And, of course, if you send a 1,000, you will get some good replies. And he did get people, including the Queen, who actually wrote back to him recognising him as a prince. She did? She did. That, that, she was clearly poorly advised in that matter, do, do you think? Martin Charteris might, might not have been hovering over her shoulder when she wrote that letter? Well, probably not. And if you're the Queen and you get thousands and thousands of letters, you probably just reply on the same terms. It was probably some poor flunky who just wrote back addressing the person as they wrote the letter. And uh, the thing was he claimed that this was recognition. He, he said that if people address me in this way, surely it means that 
I am a prince. And the media often fell for it. There were glowing stories around the world about this tiny province, this royalty without serfs, without labourers, you know, an idyllic utopia within Australia that people bought into had some legal status, even though, of course, it did not. In 1975, you've published a letter here that was written by the Prime Minister at the time, Gough Whitlam, who normally would quite enjoy a bit of Australian larrikinism. Clearly, though, the limits of his tolerance had been exceeded in this matter. He wrote a letter to Prince Leonard, and I'll I'll quote him here, and I'll do it in Gough's voice (laughs) as well. Dear Mr Cassidy, I should like to make perfectly clear to you that the Australian government does not recognise legally or otherwise the existence of the, quote, Hutt River Province, unquote. The area concerned is part of the Australian nation and the constitution and laws of Australia apply in the self-styled province just as they apply to other parts of the Australian nation. Good. That's extraordinary that a Prime Minister... Mm had to write, felt or felt he had to write such a letter to spell out to him that he's got to stop doing what he's doing. And Prince Leonard would not take no for an answer. I mean, if he, he would have loved receiving that letter without a doubt. And if nothing else, the attention he was getting was enormous. So as a project that was about attention-seeking, about also attracting tourists, because what they did is change their farm from wheat to tourism and at one point apparently got nearly 40,000 tourists a year, this became a money-making exercise. So the more attention he got, good or bad, was grist to the mill when it came to what he was achieving. Now, this is a wheat farm that's like 500 k's north of Perth. It's north of Geraldton. It's sort of on the coast, isn't it? And he's attracting that many people to this, 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 this place on the map. What plans did he have to develop this spot. Well, if if you believe the media stories, there might have been a water park at one point, a casino, (laughs) hotel. And again, this was part of the (laughs) the great story that he was going to turn this into institutions fit for a nation with all of the commercial infrastructure. And and if you like, it was just a great storyteller. That was probably his biggest gift. He could tell a great yarn, maybe a long yarn in Australian vernacular, but he did so in ways that attracted attention. People love the fact that he was just not taking no for an answer and not accepting authority. And that's why we got the media attention, and particularly overseas. People just couldn't understand. Why did Australia put up with this? Why did we let him do it? And why did even our Prime Minister have to write a letter attempting to refute its existence? He issued stamps that were bought by people and used by people. Did the post office allow this? Or did they wave it through? Or what, what, what was their attitude to these, these stamps minted well, by Often, them? as you, you can imagine, they didn't notice. And uh, they had some issues with the Canadian Postal Office. And often it was quite, quite effective. How often do people actually check these things? And he went further. At one point, he even issued a declaration of war, of course, against Australia in 1977. He declared war against Australia? He did. And this was part of a cunning ploy to be recognised as a proper country. So in 1977, he sent a telegram to the Governor-General declaring by virtue of Australia's mistreatment of his nation that hostilities had begun and it should now be seen that the two nations are at war. He was prepared to deploy the 20 people on his property in about 75 square kilometres. He, of course, had no army, navy or air force, but he said it was time to resolve this through conflict. But two days later, he sent another telegram saying that the war was over. Um, They decided that they would reach a peace agreement. And his reading of the law was that because he was an undefeated nation from war, he deserved respect and had to be recognised, including his sovereignty. I must admit there's no evidence that any Australian official responded to the declaration of war, but in his mind it was another example of why he was a legitimate country. Were there any shots fired in the Great Hutt River Province War of Independence of 1977? Maybe a few rabbits, but that would have been it, I think. No, and I think... uh, 
it, look, there was no army there. Again, it, again, it shows how it's performative and it's reading documents. And the sense he had was that if he had gone to war but wasn't defeated, he was a real nation. It seems many such leaders like Prince Leonard use want some kind of Ruritanian title, some kind of royal title. It says something about the way the idea of nobility sort of puffs up a figure, I suppose, and and attracts some idea of legitimacy, even if it's a parody of legitimacy. And even if it's just to attract attention. I mean, think of all that media coverage the royals get, and if you're seeking attention, what better way to do so than become a royal yourself? And look, it plays to the ego. I mean, what a great thing to be an emperor or a king in your own lounge room, your own property. And, of course, there are many, many people who have done this, and... Uh, it is a way of attracting attention and not sometimes just for you, but often for causes. So people have done this to, um, for example, make waves environmentally. They've done this to bring attention to the fall of glaciers. They've done all sorts of things. Or in fact, we've had the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands in Australia to protest against the Ruddock Bill many years ago that outlawed same-sex marriage. And they did that in order to make a point. So often it not only brings attention, but attention to a cause. Prince Leonard issued passports. Do you know if anyone tried to use a Hutt River Province passport to enter a foreign country? Yes, it happened a number of times, and you'd have to say, I suspect, usually without success, but these were passports that did look awfully Australian. In fact, the Australian government was quite concerned that they looked pretty much like an Australian passport, except just the word Australia was missing. So it was pretty easy for someone to get it wrong. And this was well before biometric elements to passports. And we had one example in France when somebody arrived in Paris under a Hutt River passport, insisted it was the second largest country in Australia. The officials went back, conferred, decided the safer thing was to let this person through, <laughs> unimaginable perhaps in the current world, and they said, Your Excellency, as the ambassador of the Hutt River Province, welcome to France. <laughs> what happened to the Hutt River Province? Does it still exist today? No, it doesn't. And in the end, it became a victim of those two things, death and taxes. Um, because the bottom line was they couldn't operate outside the law. And they got caught up in a running series of court battles, got fined $2 for not voting in federal elections, got caught up in all sorts of council shenanigans. But the bottom line was they started to make real money through tourism. And, of course, who became interested? The tax department. They took them to court. Um, the Hutt River province tried to argue their own country, but that was described as gobbledygook. The tax department won and they were faced with a $2.7 million bill in taxes in arrears, and they just couldn't pay it. Uh, Prince Leonard himself died a few years ago, and the property was sold in 2021, and that brought an end oh. to this second great country in our the, nation. The second biggest nation in That's Australia. That's right. So death and taxes, ultimately, it gets us all. There's a photo of Prince Leonard and Princess Shirley and their 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 sons standing behind them. It's, it's an oddly 19th-century-looking photo. All the men are looking pretty pleased about the whole thing. Princess Shirley, perhaps not so much. <laughs> what, what tends to happen in these family dynamics when, when the man declares he's going to secede from whatever nation and set up his own ind independent nation? Well, and we are talking about men almost exclusively, mm -hmm. and uh, you do find there's some long-suffering women along for the ride who often get the royal titles but perhaps do the real work of the new monarchy. And uh, you often find some family members, a lot of quotes from people saying how embarrassed they are about their dad, who's declared himself <laughs> to be an emperor, a king, and the, the poor kids have been invested with a title, and it really is one of those hobbies that uh, they perhaps wish didn't happen. It also explains why these things tend to be ephemeral. They don't tend to outlast their founder, because there is someone who's a bit 
you know, a bit obsessive about this, attention-seeking, and the kids tend to move on pretty quickly rather than wanting to inherit the kingdom. I wonder if you, I mean, there's the obvious connection between Australian larrikinism, the idea of thumbing your nose at hierarchy and the like in Australia, but do you think there might also be one in the idea of how modern Australia was actually claimed for the British Empire back in the day? Because you think about it, Captain Cook and his crew, and they sail up the east coast of Australia, they plant a flag, the Union Jack at the top of Cape York, and claim the continent of Australia for the British Empire. Now, they're the only British people anywhere near the place. There's, what, there's about 20, 30 people on that boat or thereabouts. The continent is already peopled by a very large population of Indigenous people and paying no mind to them or their laws or their customs or whatever. They plant the flag, they put the Union Jack down, they go, well, this is definitely British now, this place. Mm. Do, do you think there's an element of establishing the micronation in the very founding of modern Australia, George? I think there is, and it shows there's often a thin line between a state and a micronation. It is about your ability to enforce your claim. And if you look at the British, it was about confidence and backing it up with force. And if micronations could do the same, well, they may well become real states. But the difference with them is they don't have the force, they don't have the ability to back it up. But if you look at that colonial history, it was often about just asserting your claim and making it true. The most swashbuckling of your micronation founders was a man named Roy Bates, who established the Principality of Sealand mm. in the United Kingdom. Tell me to begin with, where and what is Sealand? So Sealand is an old World War II installation that was built about 13 k's off the UK coast, designed to protect the UK in the event of an invasion. And it looks a bit like an abandoned oil rig. The surface is around the size of two tennis courts. And as you can imagine, really inhospitable. The sort of place you would not want to live or be, exposed to the elements. And I think the British thought something that no one would have any interest in after World War II. So it's a big concrete platform, essentially. Yeah, basically, with nothing, no dirt or any capacity for habitation. It's just this platform that sits in the sea should the UK have needed to defend itself. So tell me then about this Roy Bates, the visionary who decided he would found the nation of Sealand. What was his background? He was a, uh, a real character. Uh, like many of these people, it's hard to separate fact from fiction. What we do know is he served in, served in World War II, got himself in some scrapes, and after World War II went through a succession of jobs and decided that the job for him was to be part of pirate radio. And uh, back at this point in the United Kingdom, the BBC had monopoly on radio, only it could broadcast. And particularly when it came to pop, its view was that it needed to carefully curate pop radio in line with the church's values. And the result was that people had very limited listening opportunities. So what, this is in the era of the Beatles, is it? And, and the BBC yeah, is... Yeah, it's the Beatles. Right, not really playing that much stuff That's uh, right. on radio. So how did these pirate radio stations set up? I remember the Goodies episode where they set mm. up their own pirate radio station. I remember that. And the only record they had, it was a walk through the Black Forest, which they, <laughs> they played again and again and again. How did these pirate radio stations work in the 60s? Well, they, they set up ships off the coast and sometimes with very large loudspeakers. They literally had these big megaphones that they broadcast at beaches. With advertising, they made many, many millions of pounds based upon uh, threatening the monopoly. Initially, they got away with it, but then the British said, you can't do this within a three-mile zone, which they said they controlled. As in that, then they had to move to other methods to broadcast, but Roy Bates was one of these people. He initially was on a platform within the three-mile zone, then he got caught by the regulations, decided he had to move and set his sights on this roughs platform, which became Sealand. So then how did his, his ambitions rise from 
setting up a pirate radio station to actually declaring his own micronation. Well, and the first thing was with violence. I mean, Sealand was actually occupied at the time by other people who wanted to do a pirate radio station. Oh, really? So right. he, he had to invade up. and occupy he that did. place? He did. He, he just like other... He was a coloniser. He came in, took over this platform. Uh, there was talk of a flamethrower, there was talk of air rifles, guns, and he dispossessed these poor people running a pirate radio station who really didn't want to be involved in a gunfight. But he took it over, he moved his family on, and then then about 67 decided that, uh, you know, why just run a pirate radio station? Why not become a prince in my own land? Someone to give him the idea. And so he set up his own country on this platform 13 k's off the UK coast. What did that mean for him and his family to live on this platform all the way out at sea, this elevated concrete platform right above the raging waters of, of the North Atlantic, I suppose, below, uh, George? And bitterly cold. Mm. And uh, it was about a four and a half hour trip from where they lived to get to the platform. And particularly his daughter Penelope would talk about the just dreadful experiences she had of regularly travelling from their home four and a half hours on an exposed boat. And she said she would just feel like someone should kill her now. It was so dreadful. And then they would get there, have to climb up a rope, be on this exposed platform, have whatever tin food they could and uh, huddle in blankets, often for weeks at a time, because it was so inhospitable. It got better over time as they built facilities there. About 50 people lived there at one point. But essentially he imposed this on his family. They couldn't even go to school because they lived on this platform. But it was his vision and... Uh, it was his life that he lived out as this prince of this principality. You, you write that he made it like a kind of a gift to his wife. On her birthday, he said, now you are the queen of your own nation. Isn't that a marvellous thing for you? I wonder <laughs> what she made of it over time. I can just imagine her and probably the daughter rolling their eyes at <laughs> this man who had decided he wanted to be a prince in his own domain. And, and the cost w- would have been enormous and... Uh, it ended the ability for a normal life. You know, Britannia ruling the waves and all of that, what did the Royal Navy and the British government make of him setting up his own little independent state off their coast? Well, they were, they were all a flutter. It really perplexed them because he had set this up outside their three-mile zone of control. So he was outside of the UK border. At one point, he fired a gun at a passing Navy ship. He got prosecuted in a British court and they said, no, you can't. He's outside of our zone of control. So he had discovered a a no man's land. Effectively, he could impose his will upon. They tried to offer him thousands of pounds. He said, no, I want 10 times that amount to leave. There was talk about legislation. At one point, they thought of invading in order to kick him off. But in the end, they had to put up with him because they felt it would be too embarrassing to take it further. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, George, we were talking about the independent nation of Sealand, set up by the mercurial Roy Bates and his family on an old concrete platform off the coast of the UK, somewhere in east, near East Anglia and thereabouts. In the end, what kind of modus vivendi did they come up with with the UK government? How did they, how did they figure out how to coexist peacefully out there? 
I think tolerance in the end came down to the UK government realised they couldn't move them on easily and Roy Bates again was very good in the media. So when there was a threat they might try and remove him, he talked about the threat to his family, the impact upon his kids and he drummed up enormous media sympathy. And, and so the government just felt politically it wasn't worth their while. Better to let him do what he's doing than cook up a political firestorm. Couldn't they just wait for the family to vacate the place on holiday or go back to the, the mainland and then just get the Royal Navy into to to just completely and utterly destroy that platform if they there should was, choose to do so? There was talk about doing yeah. that. And other countries as well asked the British to do it because they're worried it'd become a tax haven a haven for all sorts of bad internet hosting, all sorts of issues they were worried about. But the British, partly because they were concerned about fair play, they had a couple of opportunities, but they never took it because they felt it would be not fair play to destroy it when, for example, he's in Britain in a court case or something like that. So they just never took the option. All right, so so Roy Bates and his family have got this tenuous hold on this <laughs> this platform off the uh, the British coast. Then a group of Germans came to him. An interesting group of German men came to him with uh, big plans. Tell me about the potential they saw in Sealand for themselves. Well, they saw the chance to monetize this. Uh, I mean, this option of what could you do with somewhere proclaiming to be a country that wasn't within Britain, wasn't within Germany, maybe you could set up as a tax haven, for example, or could you mint stamps and make a lot of money out of stamps? They saw all of these opportunities. And so they started to do a deal. They actually got heavily involved. They did start to make money. But then they got a bit greedy too. And at one point they decided they wanted all of Sealand. So they invited the Bates over to continental Europe. And while they were there, they essentially invaded. The Germans <laughs> took over Sealand. Sorry, and they, sorry. they invaded. <laughs> they invaded a, a giant concrete platform as big as two tennis courts off the English coast, is what well, you're saying. Well, that's right. They, the Germans invaded Britain. <laughs> and as they had not done in World War II, they took over this time. They succeeded in their invasion. Michael Bates, who was there, the son of Roy Bates, was locked in a cupboard. And the Germans took over. And uh, Roy realised what had happening. He realised that he was being fed a lie. So he actually needed to take the country back. He got a helicopter actually piloted by someone who'd done the stunts in a James Bond movie, and they reinvaded. They took it over again with guns and they arrived on the platform and essentially reasserted control. And this time they took the Germans hostage, which led to a diplomatic crisis because they refused to release the Germans and the German government couldn't understand why Britain wasn't intervening. Eventually, uh, Roy Bates mm. decided he'd release the hostages, but on the basis he felt he got some sort of recognition from the German government, which had enforced his claims to be a sovereign country. So Roy Bates died in 2012 at the ripe old age of 91. Is Sealand still a going concern today? It is. There's only a couple of caretakers on there and Michael Bates, the son, doesn't live there anymore. I think he decided perhaps he didn't want to impose on his own kids what was imposed upon him by his dad. But it's still there and I think it still makes a bit of money. It's celebrated in the media. It's, it's a beacon, if you like, of resistance to authority and it's something that I'm sure someone else is going to find another way to monetize in the future. So if the Hutt River province and Sealand have things in common, it's well, something in common, it's that they came about in reaction to the founders' perception of being subject to unfair laws, mm. unjust laws, a wheat quota in one case and the restriction on radio broadcasting mm. in the second case. There's the Republic of Minerva is another one of the micronations you've got in your book. What was it that motivated the founder of the Republic of Minerva to set up a micronation? And, and you're right, this is a really different set of justifications. This was Michael Oliver who had emerged from World War II deeply scarred. He had uh, lived in a Nazi concentration camp for four years. He'd seen his parents die, his siblings die, and he went to the United States. But 
he was someone who, as a result, believed very deeply that governments should not exert control over people, who's a libertarian, essentially. And he thought there shouldn't be taxation, shouldn't be social security. And his vision was to create a new society where people were free to do what they wanted. He made a fortune in the Las Vegas real estate market. You would have thought America would have been a paradise. I mean, he'd, he'd mm. come, he, he was a, a Jewish refugee from Lithuania, which had the Nazis come through and then the Soviet Union come through with pogroms and violence and mass persecutions mm. and the like. You can see why he doesn't want to live under a totalitarian state. But he's come to America... He's made his fortune in Las Vegas, of all places. Why does he want to escape it, do you think? Yeah, and yet he describes America and its constitution as totalitarian. He, he believed that it was on a slide to a socialist republic and he felt it was his duty either to stop that or to leave and set up his own country. And he was deeply idealistic. He influenced many thousands of people through that vision and you can still see the strands of libertarianism in the US today with the sovereign people movement a lot of the Trumpism sensing deep distrust of authority, and he took that to an extreme. And in the end, he felt he had to leave America in order to create his own utopian society. Well, Grover Norquist, one of those uh, anti-tax um, advocates in the United States, said he wanted to shrink the US government down to such a small size it could be drowned in a bathtub. What does the purest libertarian position uh, want to see for a country like the United States or, or indeed libertarians here? Well, it would say that the government should only intervene where some form of force might be needed, for example, to stop someone stealing your property. There's a role for government there to stop theft. So there's the courts and the police? That's about it. And that's it? No social security. And indeed, even the courts, they would say that you don't pay any taxes for the courts. If you want to use a court, you pay a fee to use the court, but no social welfare, no nanny state in the sense of regulating products, regulating what you do, no regulations on pornography or other harmful things. Essentially, you're free to do what you want. Uh, the only limit being where government needs to intervene to protect you from someone else. So this attracts people from the right of politics who don't like paying tax, but it also attracts people on the left as well, doesn't it? Which aspects of that attract the left? I think uh, the left would be attracted where they see opportunities for, you know, societies that don't depend upon government. They most more communitarian societies, for example, where people rule themselves in a collectivist way and they're doing it because they want to live in a, in a communal society where they think that people should run that, not governments. So where did he go about looking then, Michael Oliver, as like, a place to set up this utopian libertarian community? Like many people, micronationalists, they look in the nooks and crannies of the globe. So in some cases, they've looked to Antarctica. Are there areas there that haven't been claimed? Are there gaps between borders where countries haven't claimed places? In the case of Michael Oliver, he looked to the oceans and he said, well, a lot of that's not claimed. Are there parts of the oceans that I could found a nation on? And he found the Minerva Reef, which is uh, southwest of Tonga, about 500 kilometres. And he saw this partially submerged reef and he thought about, what if we dump a lot of dirt on this reef? Can we effectively lift it up? And they thought about creating a really large landmass using a lot of money that then they could build their nation on. Now, this can be done. The Chinese government have been doing this mm. with atolls in the South China Sea, turning a little reef or an atoll into a more substantial island that they can then build military inst installations upon. Mm. How much success did he have in turning this reef into an atoll or indeed into an island? Well, they made good progress. They got about 15 acres reclaimed, so quite a large area. 
And as we know, it is possible to do it, but it got awfully expensive and awfully difficult. And what they also ran into problems with is South Pacific nations weren't that keen on somebody dumping a new nation in their midst, particularly run by someone with such a strong libertarian streak. And you'd have to say that it wasn't a very inclusive nation. He wasn't looking to include the South Pacific Islanders in his nation, except perhaps as his labourers. So they saw this as a, a bit of a colonial impost and as something that really was not what they wanted to see in their backyard. Oh, it was going to be like one of those gated communities of golfers in Florida, essentially, but with no no tax and just the court system and, and the police, and that's about it? I think so. I think so. And, and they weren't welcoming others. So it was libertarian, but not to the extent of saying that we welcome other people to join our community. But presumably someone was going to have to build this place and, you know, run the golf course and do the plumbing and serve the food and do all that stuff. Who was that going to be? Well, probably people from Tonga and Fiji. He'd be brought in. um, And it showed also the racial lines often that afflicted the libertarian movement at this point. And you can imagine that they were concerned as nations, what influence would this have? Would this destabilise the South Pacific? Because if this happened, would there be more people seeking to do something similar? And so what view did the King of Tonga take to this libertarian setting up a his intent anyway, to build a rich man's playground in his backyard. Yeah, not keen, as you can imagine. And they had a special connection to the reef. They'd had a group of sailors who'd been shipwrecked on the reef. They had been rescued to much fanfare. There'd been a national celebration. And so there was a, a nationalistic connection to this area. And did this, this would have looked like colonisation, I suppose, from Westerners too, wouldn't it? Well, and it was, in mm. essence. They were taking over this area in their backyard. And so what the Tongan Navy did is they turned up, they reclaimed <laughs> the reef, they destroyed the buildings, they put their flag and they said, we are the sovereigns of this area. And again, as it shows, it comes down to who's got the force to enforce their claim because Oliver had money, but he didn't have a navy. He didn't have an army. And in the end, Tonga got its way. They were booted off. I suppose ideologically, he couldn't have had a navy or an army, could he? You need well, taxes and you need uh, right. you know, the way you go. So where did he go after that? Where did he try, Where else did he try to set up this utopian oh, he, libertarian he, nation? He worked his way around the world. And in the end, he couldn't find another nook and cranny. He couldn't find another Minerva reef that was going to work. So he did try the Bahamas, sought to set up a secessionist rebel movement there, tried Vanuatu. A, a rebel movement with guns? Yes, yes. So it got more serious and he tried to negotiate with nations to say, can you give me part of your territory? I'll pay well if you'll give me you know, a large or even a small slice of your territory, but no one was prepared to do it. So that's why he went the violent route but never succeeded. And in the end, he just disappeared. He never achieved his goal but he was a hero to those people who believed in a true utopian libertarian movement. We don't know where he is today? Nope. Makes you wonder why he didn't go the L. Ron Hubbard option, you know, which is to set up an ocean liner. You know, L. Ron Hubbard found himself kicked out of mm. country after country and so set up the Sea Org where a bunch of Scientologists attended to him on this ocean liner as they went all over the world. You'd think that would be a temptation to set up a micronation on an ocean liner, George. Yeah, and people have tried. For example, seasteads as well are quite common where they set up their little floating... Uh, even cities, if they can do it. And that's where the modern movement is, is actually can we set up these floating islands which don't reclaim territory but are moored, if you like. The problem is it's expensive and you do need fresh water, you need food, you need industry. Yeah, and where do you go for a walk? Well, yeah, it, it gets pretty dull. And like a lot of these micronations, they're sustained by the passion, enthusiasm and obsession of their founder, but often that wanes when that person leaves. Uh, George, in your book you, you showed that some micronations are not founded by larrikins or aggrieved citizens or libertarian utopians like Michael Oliver, but by more sinister elements. You have the story of the Territory of Poye, spelled P-O-Y-A-I-S, that comes about in the early 19th century. Tell me about the ruler of this Central American paradise 
called Poirier, known as the Kazik of Poirier, a man who arrived in London in 1821 for a royal coronation. Tell me what kind of impact the Kazik of this land of Poirier made when he arrived in London in 1821. Well, the Kazik had, had an enormous impact, and that's because he arrived at a time when people were hungry for something better. And what he said was that he was a ruler of this idyllic paradise in South America, around where Honduras is. He said it was an area where they had colonnades, they had uh, wonderful buildings, they had uh, an Anglophile population who was desperate to welcome people from the United Kingdom. And he said, essentially, this is a paradise. You can come and live in. All you need to do is give me your possessions and money and you can come and join me in this country. So there's a city, he said. There's a city, effectively, and uh, buildings and Yeah, and they're all next to Sugarloaf Mountain. Um, and there was the Mosquito Coast, but he said it's called the Mosquito Coast because there's these little islands just off this paradise that look like mosquitoes in terms of their shape. Really? But no real mosquitoes. Really? It's free of disease. He said that? He did. And uh, he put out a 300-page a document, a guidebook, if you like, that he toured around Britain saying, come and see this wonderful place. At the same time, he sought to raise about $3.6 billion through so, bank so, bonds. So these are like the posters and handbills that were created in the 1950s by Australia to bring 10-pound poms to Australia. This yes. sort of thing. Come to this promised land, this yes. bountiful land with these beautiful cities and sunshine and warmth and good health and the like. That's right. McGregor was his name and he said... Uh, Come and join me here. This is your chance for a better life. And you can imagine how many people are attracted to that. Hundreds of people were attracted to this. And they did give up their positions. And two ships went to his paradise full of these people, funded through these bank bonds, to go and join his new community. And what happened when these two shiploads of British migrants to this marvellous land, the territory of Poirier. What did they see when they arrived at the territory of Poirier on the Mosquito Coast? They saw a mosquito-ridden coast. (laughs) There there was no country. It was one of the greatest scams in history and two-thirds of them died. Was there anything there at all? No. No, there were a few huts, but uh, there was no country. It was a scam. He'd set up his own country, but he had essentially lied about everything. And so 250 people did arrive there to nothing. In an equatorial jungle, effectively. Yes. That's right. So he'd, he'd sold them a lie, essentially. And at this point, hard in the early 1800s to disprove whether this country actually existed. So he took their money, they arrived, and two-thirds died. The rest came back again, impoverished, desperately ill, malaria, all sorts of diseases. And in this case, he created his own nation essentially as a fraud, and it was highly successful for him. So, George, who was this man, the Kazik of Poyer, who sold these poor people shares in this malarial hellhole? Well, he was a serial fabulist, you'd have to say, who spent his life really as a con artist going around... Where was he from? Oh, he's from Scotland originally. And the Kazik of Poirier was actually a Scotsman. Yeah, right. he was. And he, he worked out a lot of clever ways that he'd part people from their money, and, and that was by selling them dreams. And that not only included people, it included banks. He got a lot of bank backing for his bank bonds, And what he was able to do through this and other schemes was essentially create this wonderful vision on the other side of the world that people bought into. And in doing so, he caused enormous harm. He, like others, had a bit of a military background. That's quite a common theme for many of these people. Didn't he fight alongside Simon Bolivar at one point? Yes, and he was actually recognised for his military prowess. So... But again, it's hard to separate fact from fiction for some of these people. But this was his greatest, if most troubling, achievement. The fact he convinced these hundreds of people to go literally to the other side of the globe, to a mosquito-infested hellhole, while making himself a mozza in doing so. Was he good at looking the part of the Kazik 
of Poirier. Well, he was, and he even got the support of British royalty. So How? he was, well, he was wined and dined. And again, if you look the part and you can't be disproved and you've got this 355-page guidebook extolling the virtues of your new country and people want to believe it. At this point, they were desperate to believe something of this kind. It, it worked. He was someone who was brilliant at what he did and he won people over. You say that some of the survivors managed to find their way back to London. Did they want to hang that guy? And were they able to? What happened to him? Were there consequences for him in this? I mean, he was someone who was protected in part by people who perhaps didn't want to admit how badly they'd been conned. That was part of it, even though it was obvious what had happened. But yes, um, eventually he was caught up with, like many of these people, ended up in disgrace, ended up in a situation where the law caught up with him. But it was by virtue of a series of comms and scams, but most of them were quite successful. We were saying at the outset that Australia seems to be more than generously endowed with its share of micronations. Have these been pretty much benign entities by and large, George? Mostly, mostly, yes. And they're people who often, for example, are taking a protest up against a council that won't let them build a driveway. So we've got the Principality of Y in Mossman in Sydney, for example. The Principality of Y in Mossman? What is that? Well, um, Dupre was his name, who was refused permission to build a driveway across bushland. So, of course, he did the good Australian thing. He seceded from Australia, marched into Mossman Council wearing his robes, said, I'm no longer part of this country. I'm the Principality of Y. You can check it on the internet. It still exists. And uh, since then, he has asserted his independence from the nation. So there's a lot of people like that, characters, you'd have to say. There's the Emperor of Atlantium, another person. There are many of these people. Where is, where is Atlantium? Well, that's really in someone's own bedroom, someone's own house, but it has a very large virtual presence as well. So thousands of people have joined in this sense of citizenship. And often you find what's happened in the modern world is less about physical property and more about the internet. It's about building communities around ideas that these countries might represent. So even though there's more than 100 of these places around the world with physical locations, there's many, many more in cyberspace because it's a way of connecting with people and connecting with people who have a shared vision about the world they want to live in. You are perhaps one of Australia's... Well, you're certainly one of Australia's most distinguished constitutional scholars and legal authorities. You've advised on uh, the Republic referendum, on the voice to parliament as well, on, on a great many things. And as such, you know pretty much every nook and cranny of the Australian constitution, which has been helpful in creating a very, very stable nation. So then for you to write uh, with your co-author about these micronations, which I think by their nature are not hugely stable entities and <laughs> uh, not widely recognised. What do you learn? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you see between the, in the similarities and differences between such micronations and, and long-standing real nations, if you can call it that, like the Commonwealth of Australia? Well, often it's a matter of perspective with these things. And, and so if you do give that example of how Australia was formed on the lands of other people through assertion, or in the case of micronations, people seeking to assert something different. It often comes down to your capacity to actually live out your aims and dreams. But I think I'm also attracted to this because our constitution is one of the oldest and most stable in the world, one of the most continuous constitutions in the world, whereas micronations are ephemeral, they're a bit of fun, and they're a way of actually thinking about things differently, challenging authority. And actually, I think uh, a lot of fun in what these people do and uh, often to be celebrated. And finally, George, all these micronations have been led by men, by and large, as you've, as you've said, pretty much all of them. Have there been micronations founded by women? 
there have been, but not many. And uh, you've got to ask, why is it that men are so attracted to this? Maybe it's the dressing up, maybe it's the medals, the uniforms, or maybe it's the ability to impose your views upon the world, even if only in your bedroom as a king or emperor. But we do have a Sidia, for example, which is in the United States. That's a micronation founded by women. And it was founded on International Women's Day in 2015. And what they believe in is only one boundary, and that's the boundary that women mandate over their own bodies. And otherwise, they believe in free travel, freedom, but they do believe in, if you like, female autonomy. What territory does it occupy? It's a 900-gram rock of obsidian, essentially, and they... They say that is their territory. They carry around the rock for their celebrations and say, essentially, that's the only part of this world they want to exert control over. And I think that, again, is part of the point, that they're not trying to affect others. They're not trying to impose their views on others. They're for freedom and particularly for choice for women. George, this has been great fun. I'm now going to disband the Empire of Corolla that uh, <laughs> I've set up for the purposes of this interview because we have armed guards at the door. Uh, I'm just going to surrender but perhaps in this act, as you say, of declaring war and then uh, declaring war to be over, they may grant me some... Look, I'm going to pursue it. I, I may pursue it, I may not, I don't know. Thank you so much, George. It's been a, such a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, Your Highness. <laughs> George Williams is the author of How to Rule Your Own Country, The Weird and Wonderful World of Micronations. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now. Diehard music fans. At the tender age of 52. <laughs> and a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore? 